Hey, before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who has supported uh, our new book, supported the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the Catholic Man Show. Uh, your support has helped us be able to continue our marketing efforts for our new book. Uh, here's an endorsement that we received I wanted to share with you guys. Living Beyond Sunday, Making Your Home a Holy Place is a must-read book for every Catholic family. Adam and Haley Minahan and David and Pamela Niles beautifully and powerfully present the perennial truth that the church can only be as strong as her families and constitute her foundation, the domestic church. But most importantly, they also systematically lay out the divine blueprint for making more than just strong families, but saint-making machines, as they call them. There is no greater need for our times than this. That's from Tim Staples from Catholic Answers. Um, We appreciate Tim for his endorsement. Go check out our book at ascensionpress.com, Living Beyond Sunday, Making Your Home a Holy Place. Uh, Order one for you and for your friends. Thank you so much to everybody for your support. Cheers. Here's to good friends. Cheers. 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 Hmm. That's sort of an oaky afterbirth. Mm. What was that? She did tell me to uh, get a beer and some cheese fries over at Eskimo Joe's. That's very nice, lovely. I only hope you feel this way when I'm done. Because I could destroy this night in two seconds. Why is that funny? (laughs) Well, I think it's a bit funny to be trying to define nothing. (laughs) Smooth as a bourbon on a summer day. Strong as a peated scotch in the winter night. This is a fair warning. The Catholic Man Show is about to begin. Slap some bacon on a biscuit and let's go. We're burning daylight. Welcome to the Catholic Man Show. We're on the Lord's team, the winning side, so raise your glass. Adam Minahan here, sitting in studio with David Niles, Juan Posada on the buttons. We have Jim guarding the door. The, the, the gang is back. We haven't, we haven't had an actual episode all together in maybe the longest it has been since we started the show. Yeah, I think you're right. It could have been, yeah. I think it's yeah. been, what, five weeks? Since no, we've done one? Four weeks. Four weeks. Yeah, four four weeks. weeks. Okay. Well, we also have uh, uh, our guest, Deacon Harrison Garlic, Lord Chancellor of the Diocese of Tulsa in Eastern Oklahoma, in-house counsel. Dave didn't say it. I said it. I didn't mm-hmm. say that. Happy to be here for the Thank reunion. Yes. Yeah, it's great to have you back. We had uh, a couple great episodes with you on uh, Eros. Talked about erotic love. Erotic love, which was a really, really great topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yep. then we also mm-hmm. talked about Dante's Inferno, which we're, we're going to actually talk about Dante a little bit tonight as well. Yeah, he'll make a comeback. Yeah. Um, so it's great to have you back, Deacon. Thanks for... Oh, uh, also, you ha- you were on a long time ago talking about the diaconate and women priests. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's We true. didn't long, actually talk about women priests. Long time ago. <laughs> yeah, episode 15, I think. I actually went back and looked. Nice. Yeah, so I could figure out if I could like, delete yeah, it from I mean, the internet. Was, no, you can't. Yeah, I tried. You can't. I, was, I was pay a lot of money to do that in general, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, w- I wasn't on, Gates. The, He's the only on that episode. Yeah, that was back when it was just like in... I think we just did that episode in David's it was like just living my room. room. Yeah. yeah, we're just sitting there. Nice. You guys have uh, expanded a bit. Yes, a little bit so. We but did not have a budget back then. Mm-hmm. You yeah. didn't have one on the buttons either. No, we had no buttons even. <laughs> <laughs> or camera, actually. No camera. Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit easier back then. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, here we are. But here we are. 
Uh, Dave, how was your six month vacation? It was so good. You know, yeah. it felt like only two weeks, but uh, it was really, really great. You know, for the people who don't know, we go to my my family has a cabin in northern Michigan. It's built by my great uncle eighty seven mm. years ago. Uh, it's a log cabin, um, a real a, a real, real log, log cabin. cabin. So like, the, and there's just so much history in my family going up to this lake in this spot in this cabin. My dad has been going up since he was born every year, almost. I have been going up there every year since I was born. Um, and so there's just so much, like, you know, traditions when we go about, like, oh, taking walks to the pine forest and hmm. doing, like, things there. Chopping wood. And, yeah, I chopped some wood this year. Mm-hmm. Um, just awesome. It's my, fa- it's my favorite place. Uh, before you left, we did an episode with, with our wives. Yes. The Catholic Man Show. Mm-hmm. It was only the second time we've done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if they'll want to come back on or not, but because we were talking about our book. We have a book. We have a book. That you can order. Yes, on Ascension Press. You can do it now. You can go and order it. Living Beyond Sunday, Making Your Home a Holy Place. Like you probably don't need, what is it, eleven ninety five? Eleven ninety five. You probably got that much to spare. I mean, it's just what I'm guessing. You live in America. You live in America probably, if you're listening to our show. But even if you don't, if you're podcasting, like you're probably rich. So <laughs> really? everybody knows that. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, you only podcast if you've got spare time, right? I guess. Sure. We'll let it ride. I guess you could do it at work. Never mind. I take it all I take it all back. Take it all back. Okay. But the actual point is you guys came out with a pretty good book. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I'm excited about it. Uh, our wives helped us write the book, so it, it gives a little bit of perspective from the uh, female side. And then you know, Dave and I uh, partnered up on a couple chapters. They partnered up on a couple chapters, and then we did ones with our wives together. And yeah, so it's mainly a practical theology for a holy marriage, right? right? That's, that's like, correct. That's its main. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yep. And I feel like we covered some angles on the domestic church that uh, don't don't get much play. Mm-hmm. Like what you know, uh, like things like. The actual building that you live in. Um, what is people talk about the domestic church about the practicality, which we talk about a lot. But we also go to um, like what's the the telos, you know? Uh, what what should we what should our domestic church be ordered towards? You mm-hmm. know, which is a very important thing, to, and it's like you can't skip that. So, how much did you drill down there? Did you talk about like? Getting screens out, like how your furniture is arranged for conversation, like home altars, like or oratories. So we talk like when we talk about the actual layout of your house. Um, what we do is we go through and talk about each room, and like what is this room ordered towards? Um, how should the rooms function? What what why is this room important? You know why mm. why is it important that we have walls? You know like the idea of like that there's walls around your dining room. Like you have a room that's just for dining. And that gives dignity to this dining. You know, this the, the, the family would do this thing called dining, and it's so important. That we that set we have, it apart. That we set it apart, right? It it's becomes holy because in that, you know, sort of in that way, that it's set apart. That we have a room that we, we don't do anything except put our extra laundry and, and dine <laughs> in this room. <laughs> right. We have to clean when guests come over. Exactly. Right. <laughs> I would say after hearing that episode, I... Pull back out the glass ditches. The, the, the dishes? The glass dishes. Oh, the glass yeah. dishes. Yeah, dishes. Yeah. Because after baby comes, we go into like a paper plate mode. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's hard to break from that. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to make a paella this week. I'm going to eat it in my glass dish. Nice. Nice. You guys eat 
every family dinner at the dining room table? At our particular house, we just have a our, just the one. We just have one place to eat. Mm-hmm. Okay, but we also talk about you know the language of the domestic church. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about uh, leisure of the domestic church, which is something I don't think a lot of people talk about. Yeah. Uh, we also talk about like this, like being a servant. How each person within the family has a duty to serve the uh, like other members of the family, and how like what that looks like, even as a for different ch- ages yeah, and child mm-hmm. to even parent, parent to child. Um, so we have a we have a lot. Of, we take a lot of different angles. I think than than a normal domestic church book, but it is very practical. It's right. all about you know what can you do, what should it be, how to. So do So are you guys gonna go on tour, or what are you gonna do with your? Book? I don't know. If and people want us, yet. we'll come. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. If you build it, we will come. Yeah. (laughs) Good. Uh, So, but we're also, we also have, uh, we've been on a a couple new uh, Catholic radio uh, stations. We're out in North Carolina now. So we have some probably new listeners. Um, The three things we typically do on our show is the first thing we do is we open review and enjoy a beverage of some sort. Tonight we are going to drink a Speyside Scotch whiskey. What's it called, Adam? Uh, Kregaliki. Nice. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, I yeah. think you did it. Um, it's a 13-year-old uh, scotch. And uh, then, then we also, sometimes we talk about a, a specific gear uh, that maybe help you uh, in your day-to-day life, what the virtue is of that gear. Sometimes we do that, sometimes we do not. I've got a couple man gear still that I really want to get to. I'm excited about. In not, not today, but yeah. yeah. Uh, sometimes when we have a guest, we, we want to jump right into the topic so we can get into the actual More meat time. of the discussion. Yeah, which we're going to be we have, doing soon. Yes, and tonight we're going to talk about uh, how to read the Bible, which is something that every Catholic should uh, understand, know, and also like pass down to their children. So this will be a very important topic. But before we get into it... We do have a good scotch as, in front of us. As or, men of yeah. tradition, uh, we will cheers and then review the scotch. We're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. Cheers to Jesus. Cheers. So it's a thir- like we said, it's a thirteen-year-old Scotch, which is a you know, uh, it's a good, that's a good year Scotch. Yeah, it's I would say on the older side. You know, there's a lot that are in the ten-year. Mm-hmm. The ten for Scotch seems to be there's a lot that are about ten years. If you get much older than that, you're starting to distinguish yourself. I think a little bit. You don't actually see a whole lot of thirteen-year Scotches. You right. know, I think yeah, you see fifteen-year. Um. But so I, it's kind of interesting that this one is thirteen. What were your thoughts, Deacon? It's tasty. It's tasty. Okay. I, I, can, also, I still compare everything in my head to Lafroy. Yeah, I know. It says that's what I do. It's it, like Lafroy will ruin you. Right. It does. In that way. So when I drink it, I'm like, oh, it's a sweet. Oh yeah. Like oh, their intent oh, it's, might not even be to be sweet at all. Oh, it's, it's like, like candy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it doesn't taste like a coal mine, so too sweet. Hmm. So I do think that there is a lot of sweetness, though. I I, I do get caramel. Hmm. Um, it, it actually surprised me when I, when I tried it, I said like, oh, hello. Uh, it's very floral in the front, uh-huh. uh, and then it gets into more of a, uh, the sweet caramel fruit, like candied apple almost, uh, on the backside. Uh-huh. I mean, it is really delicious. Yeah, it is. I think that it, I think that it was for $55. It's a good space side. No kidding. Yeah, I agree. Especially for a thirteen-year-old whiskey. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I think that's a very good value. I like the. It has like a good finish. And yeah, it's nice, long. Yeah, it's, it, it, totally does, it sticks the, with you. The florals have a short finish, like mm-hmm. this one has a nice lingering finish. Yeah, no, it does. It has a good finish. So anyway, uh, and it's once again, it's called 
Kregeliki. Mm-hmm. It's a product of Dewar's. Uh, so anyway, it's about 46% uh, ABV. So it's a nice, mm-hmm. that's a very typical uh, for scotch. Yeah. Uh, Dave, for those who are, are listening for the very first time, as we're getting to the topic uh, right after this break, because like we said, we're, this is a radio show as well, but why do we drink on air? Yeah, great question. So um, God made the things of this earth good, and we on the Catholic Man Show believe that they should be enjoyed for their goodness. That means when it comes to things like alcohol, we always want to use temperance and moderation, but there's something about a good drink that facilitates good conversation, sort of like a good meal. Mm-hmm. Um, there are just certain conversations that cannot be had without the right environment. And so a good drink, a good meal... Um, the right setting. These are all things to facilitate those deeper levels of our humanity to like really make us, help us to be the men we were made to be. So we drink in moderation mm-hmm. for that reason. Okay, well, we're here with Deacon Garlic. Uh, we will be right back to talk about how to read the Bible. Hey guys, as most of you know, we're going on a Catholic Man Show pilgrimage this year in September to Ireland with Father Sean Donovan as our chaplain, celebrating the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass every single day. We're going to go to Our Lady of Knock Shrine. We're going to go to the best local pubs in Ireland. We're also going to go on some private distillery tours that only our pilgrimage is going to get to go on, only the people who are going with us. The due date uh, to sign up is in just a few days, and we have just a few spots left, and we want you to come with us. Join us on a trip of a lifetime to Ireland. We go to Holy Sites. We try the best beer and the best whiskey in Ireland all together. It's going to be a blast. Join us. Go to thecatholicmanshow.com to find out more information. Welcome back to The Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles, here with Adam Minahan, our special guest, Deacon Harrison Garlic of the Diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma. The best diocese in the world. Correct. Recently declared infallibly by myself. Got any questions? You can take it up with me. I will not respond to email. <laughs> yeah, we're all aware. <laughs> yeah, we all know that. <laughs> all right. Uh, oh, my gosh. All right. Turn the volume down. Sorry. Um, so, I'm excited about this, uh, our topic today, about reading the four senses of uh, the, of reading the Bible. Um you put out an article about this, Deacon, about how to read the Bible like uh, Aquinas and Dante. Correct. For, for the Alcuin Institute of Catholic Culture, the another Alcuin great reason why the Diocese of Tulsa in Eastern Oklahoma is the greatest diocese in the best world. Best institute in the world. Correct. Cur- currently. Mm-hmm. Yes. At the moment. Uh, do we get the four senses? Okay, do they? Okay. I have a lot of questions. Okay, so. but let's, let's pump the brakes because before we get into how to read the Bible. I was going to ask about them, but yeah, I think there's some setup. There, l- 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 yeah, let's set, set it this up. up. So, set it up. Uh, there are different translations. I've got the bat in my hand. I'm ready to swing at the T. Okay, there are different. Put the ball on it for me. Okay. There are <laughs> I'm just going to keep drinking. Yeah. There are uh, different translations of the bible and so if you are you know i think every guy should obviously be reading the bible for themselves yeah but then also be reading to their children and then also give like if you're you know a grandfather i think it's just it's a romantic idea of of you know grand grandfather reading the bible to their children yeah um i my my grandfather did that especially during christmas time i thought you know that's just Mm -hmm. a great memory a good family memory um, and so there are different traditions that I think you can uh, incorporate uh, throughout 
throughout your lifetime regarding the Bible. One thing but, I like to do before you open presents on Christmas morning is read the Nativity, the nativity story. Yeah. There's a good tradition. Uh, yeah. Um, but for those who are like, okay, I, I need to go get a Bible, maybe we should sure. talk, talk about like yeah, what just, translations should, should we be looking for? Yeah, just some basics. Yeah. So I think there's typically two that I would recommend. Like we go through RCIA. This is a big question. Like what Bible I to get, et cetera. Like is there a Catholic Bible? You know, why is it different, et cetera. So just generally speaking on the translations, uh, one is the New American Bible, the NAB. That's typically like a phrase for phrase translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that way it can actually somewhat be poetic at times, et cetera, uh, which is what we're kind of used to on certain translations of like the Psalms or say the Lord's Prayer. But this is the one you're going to hear at Mass, right? So if you're going to habituate yourself to a certain text, then you're hearing it again. So like part of these traditions you can pick up, I think a really easy one if you want to start one, is just simply reading the gospel for the upcoming Sunday on Wednesday, right? So you read it, you think about it. Later on, you can do it according to the four senses because you've listened to this podcast. And then usually somewhere around Friday, you forgot everything that you you know looked at. And then you're sitting there in mass on Sunday and it all comes back to you, mm-hmm. right? Because you're like, oh, I, I've heard this. And then hopefully your you know, pastor then ties it into the homily and can offer you some other kind of perspective. So I think just as a real baseline kind of introductory tradition to scripture, reading on Wednesdays. The other one that I think you could look at is the... Uh, uh, RSV, which yeah. we actually have a show and tell here. RSV CE, right? Revised, the Catholic right. edition. Revised Standard. Yeah, and this yeah. is the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible. Uh, for, it's just the New Testament, but it's put out in, uh, by Ignatius right. Press. Which is the RSV with, but <clears throat> what makes it unique is their notes, the notes that they right. that they offer. Which yeah. is a, that's an incredible resource. This one is, yeah, this, this particular one where it's just the New Testament, I think is a gold mine. That's the one I, I recommend a lot to people in RCA. If you really want to dig into scripture, read this one. Clearly there's also an RSV by Ignatius Press that is the entirety of scripture, which is also, I think, very good. RSV tends to be more of a technical translation, kind of a word-by-word translation, but also kind of lends itself more to these deeper studies. Mm-hmm. I do prefer the RSV Mm-hmm. Like just as a translation, I'm not an expert, but there are certain things in the NAB that annoy me. Things like, uh, you know, instead of referring to Mary as a virgin, as a young girl, mm-hmm. in the, in in the NAB, it's like, come on, it's, it's yeah, she was a young girl, but that's not the point, right? You know, the point was that she was a virgin, right? You mm-hmm. know, so there's just a couple things like that in the NAB that, yeah, stay yeah. away from the. NRSV, there's an NRSV too. Because if you go to, I mean, if you're not familiar with these things and you go to buy a Bible, there's, I don't know how many translations there are. There's like 30,000 different types of Protestantism, so I'm assuming that there's... Is that the new revised standard version? Yeah, there's an NRSV, which is more like politically correct. Mm. So the RSV, usually if you're trying to buy it online, it's going to be the RSV CE, Mm -hmm. Catholic edition. What about the the Dua Reims? Yeah, that would be a classic. Dua Reims is awesome. Yeah, Dua Reims would be a very classic... Uh, translation there. Um, it's, it's sort of like the King James that a lot of people are familiar with. You know, it's similar in speech. Yeah, insofar as like the tradition. Right. Like, you know, it's the these and the thous. And correct. Yeah, and it lends itself to some very Which does point. like, you know, I do like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it's not going to have any, it's not going to have any undertones of being politically correct either. Right. No, right. No. Won't. Definitely, won't. definitely not. Definitely Which is helpful. Yeah. Which is helpful at times. Uh, and so, uh, the Jerusalem Bible is another one that would mm-hmm. be very good. And if I recall correctly, that's the one that has Job translated by Tolkien, I believe. Oh wow! I did not know yeah. that. So no kidding. Yeah. So uh, Deacon, you also teach RCIA, uh, and so Correct. whenever there are new Catholics or, or desiring to become Catholic, they come to you. They say, "Okay, I'm not really familiar with the Bible. Where should I start? What do you normally suggest to them?" Well, yeah. So like, if you do you at- suggest go straight to the Gospels? 
Sometimes, yeah. Yes, I mean, I think typically, like, if you're going to start reading scripture, uh, you can either start with Genesis. So I just read Genesis to my eight year old. Mm-hmm. There were some things that were modified at right. times, right, sure, to, to sure. make it proportionate. But overall, I, I think it's a really good read. We sat down and introduces you to all the patriarchs. I mean, it, it becomes you know a reference point, a guidepost to basically the rest of scripture. If you if you understand you know these basic stories uh, that I think are very good. The other one I think is John reading the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Starting there and being like, you know, what, who is Christ? You know, it's it's a it's a very poetic gospel. I think it captures people's imaginations. So if you're just gonna start reading, I think Genesis is very good, and the Gospel of John is another good start. That's, I thought you were gonna say John. Like, I was, I was thinking that's what we were gonna say, but anyway. Uh, okay, so how so <clears throat> how how do we read it? Yeah. So what we typically talk about in RCIA or in any setting, right, is Saint Jerome tells us that ignorance of scriptures is ignorance of Christ, right? So if you're not living in the scriptures, if you're not doing these things then you're ignorant of our Lord. The problem is, is that then that kind of brings up the question of like, well, how am I actually reading the scriptures? Because then there's, you know, a connection there that if I skew my understanding of the scriptures, am I not going to skew my understanding of Jesus Christ as well, right? And because of who we are, we typically bring in a lot of our culture with us as well, Mm. right? So we read something, we tend to read it according to uh, the trends and things of today. And so th- what what ends up happening is we can produce uh, a Jesus Christ that ends up looking a lot like our current culture. Right. Which is almost unavoidable. In know, certain ways, right? You know, yeah. This is the beauty of being Catholic, right? Is that I, I want to adhere myself to the beauties of 2,000 years of tradition. And one of those things is to try and, you know, remove myself from the impact and cultures of today to actually be able to understand that I am receiving the Jesus Christ that entered into history, right? I am receiving mm-hmm. that authentic, the authentic Jesus Christ who then is also present uh, daily, right in the Holy Eucharist, and yeah, it does. I mean, it's it's a it's another conforming to the cross. I mean, it's it's certainly a habit we have to take up. So when we want to do this, I think that if we're going to try and adhere ourselves to Jesus Christ, and how does this work? And we're looking at the Church for wisdom, right? Then we want to turn to the Church and say, well, then how does the Church teach us that we should read Scripture? And I think traditionally, uh, she's put before us that there are, are typically what we call four senses to Scripture. So if we're going to think like where we pull this from, etc. One interesting uh, kind of starting point with it is that Dante, so we'll go back to Dante. I like, okay. the, I like Dante as a, a guidepost. So Dante uh, writes to his patron, Lord Concrande, right, big dog, uh, who's kind of a warlord slash figure in Italy. And it's his patron, and he's writing to his patron saying, okay, this is how you read the comedy. And he says, well, you just read the comedy the same way you read scripture. And so actually he has this letter, which is, it's his, you can Google it, it's free online, his letter to Concrande. And so he actually gives his patron like this little catechesis on here's how you read scripture because if he knows how to read scripture he'll know how to read the comedy. And so he kind of just parses this out and says listen there's there's four general senses, right? So the first one is we're going to have the literal. So just you know just a basic overview, right? The literal is just like what was the author's intent? What's the historical context for this? Mm. It's not necessarily like you got to keep genre in mind, right? Because it's like they're writing a poem, right? Like the Psalms or something like this. Like that's still the author's intent, right? right. But just literally like what is the author's intent? What is historically happening in this context, right? The next three are considered spiritual. So they're this part of this kind of larger family. And we have the literal. Then we have the allegorical so we're going to look at an allegory, right? How does one thing stand as a type for another? Yeah. Then we're going to have the moral. How does this thing apply to my life? And then we're going to have the anagogical, which tends to be somewhat foreign to most people. And that's, how does this apply to my final end? What does this mean for my eternal happiness with God? Right? So he gives this kind of very quick overview of the four senses. And we see these four senses, um, just a little bit of their patrimony, right? We see them in Aquinas. 
Aquinas talks about the same four senses. They're ultimately pulled from the early church fathers, right, who would give these beautiful, rich, allegorical readings that then give us a lot to actually apply to the moral life. And then uh, they're, they're still present in our modern catechism as well, right? So this is really the church, I think, that's on, a, on a really basic level. If we want to adhere to Jesus Christ, we understand that ignorance of scriptures is, of, is ignorance of Jesus Christ. Then how do we engage the scriptures well? Well, we want to read the scriptures like a church teaches us. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Deacon, do you know, like, <clears throat> how far back do these senses go? I mean, they obviously predate Aquinas, so he's talking about them. Right. I mean, do they go back to the very beginning? The beginning. Uh, of the New Testament? I mean, like, New Testament? Yeah. Were, were, was, it, were these, was this idea present in Old Testament times? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I think, in short... Well, certainly we see, obviously, the literal is just the literal, right? That they were engaging with the text on yeah. its face. Clearly, there's an allegorical read in the Old Testament. Right. Because several times it's providence, right, himself, who's actually providing certain analogies to Israel, right? Mm-hmm. Our relationship mm-hmm. is like a husband and wife. Our relationship is a marriage. Right. So we see that in the Old Testament. But it really doesn't blossom, I think, until the new. But we see Christ using this when Christ talks about in John 6, when he talks about manna, right? I am the bread of life. He makes yeah. the, this allegorical sign. St. Peter does this uh, with Noah's Ark. So in the New Testament, it tends to really blossom, probably because it's there in a Greek culture, it's there in a Hebrew culture, and they come together in the New Testament, and it kind of gives us rich reading of how do we come to a text. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll be right back. We'll, we'll pick this up on the other side of the break. More than 60,000 men from around the world have journeyed through Exodus 90 together with their brothers. Priests, bishops, single men, married men, Catholics, non-Catholics alike. One of the things we love receiving are emails from guys who signed up to do Exodus 90 through the Catholic Command Show and let us know how much freedom they've experienced once they go through the program. And it makes sense, right? Here's how it works. And these are the things that we talk about all the time on the Catholic Man Show, which is why we love promoting Exodus 90. They have three pillars, a pillar of prayer, a pillar of asceticism, and a a pillar of fraternity. And through those three pillars, they help men grow closer to Christ, to their spouse, to their children, and to their friends, closer to that man that God has called them to be. So go check out Exodus 90. They have Exodus 90 Lent as well. It's Exodus90.com slash TCMS for the Catholic Mantra. TCMS. Thank you to Exodus90 for being a sponsor of the Catholic Mantra. Welcome back to the Catholic Mantra. Here with special guest Deacon Harrison Garlic. He is a writer for the Alcuin Institute of, of Catholic Culture. You can go to alcuininstitute.org to check out some of his writings. He's also been on uh, catholic.com, so you can Google his name there. Uh, uh, or when you're at Catholic Answers, catholic.com, you can check him out, his writings there. Mm-hmm. And then also follow him on, on Twitter. He's a, he's a great follow on, <laughs> on Twitter. So I do think that you're a good Twitter follow. Yes. You just told me the other day that you haven't logged on Twitter like, in years. But you don't have to be logged on to see someone's tweets. Oh, Okay. So I see. I just yes. don't know what people are saying to me. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't. You haven't. You can't log into your own account. I think I can. I yeah. just haven't tried. 
Okay, that's fair. That's great. No, I appreciate that. That's great. So you, so we're talking about uh, how to read the Bible. Before the break, we were talking about the allegorical aspect. When did it start? Like, how, how was it picked up on? Like, where was it picked up? Uh, I'll let you kind of take it from there. Yeah, so I think that there's, I mean, when you talk about where did this develop, right, just broadly speaking of, like, the, the four, I think you can certainly look at um, there are allegorical treatments in the Old Testament, right, um, how God explains himself to humanity, a lot of times is by, you know, analogy, clearly. Um, we also have, within the New Testament, I think you see all four senses coming together. Um, I think there's a lot of questions of then, where are these sen- are these four senses, I think, somewhat of a product of the meeting of Hebrew and Greek culture, right, before the coming of Jesus Christ, right? So, did providence uh, till the earth, if you will, till the culture, to the meeting of Hebrew and Greek thought, right, Hebrew faith, Greek thought, kind of brought together under Roman order, was there, I think, all the material necessary then to understand the Logos, to understand Christ, uh, God incarnate? And I think part of this was then they already had a rich tradition of how to read texts, both from the Hebrew side, but even from like the philosophy side, like Plato. Plato writes his dialogues in an allegorical way. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of the tilling of the soil for people to take Scripture and read it in a very deep way, which is why I think it's a lot more prominent in the New Testament, right? It's another, one of those harmonies um, that Pope Benedict talks about in the Regensburg Address between uh, Greek reason and Hebrew thought. And and even like Peter Kreeft, when he points out that the four ways are, are prominent in St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas teaches the four ways, he actually uh, uses that and puts it forward as evidence of Aquinas adhering to Platonic thought. So um, would books like the Song of Songs, you know, that are written clearly as poetry i don't want to derail us too much and right. this is going to do that and we can maybe save it for after the show but um is that an example of allegory or not in the old testament well yeah so this yeah so i think just to kind of slowly move through it right so let's just take up the literal sense and like what what does that actually mean okay. right so what we're really dealing with here is what was the author's intent what is the historical sense here so I don't think we want to be careful, I think, in certain ways not to conflate it with the idea of genre, right? So like the psalmist, the literal sense of the psalms is what the psalm says. What is the psalmist saying? The fact that it's, you know, uh, a poem or a song as opposed to, say, a historical narrative, right, of like uh, the conquest of Canaan or something like this, doesn't actually move it outside the literal sense. Right. So literal sense is just like, what was the author intending to do at this time? Okay. So I think Dante gives the example when he talks to Lord Con, uh, Congrande of um, just the, he uses very simple examples. So just you know Israel leaving Egypt, right? What does that mean? Okay, well literally we're just talking about the actual historical account of the nation of Israel leaving Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. And this is this is the bedrock understanding of Scripture. Just what is the literal side? But this is really important because I, I think that um, the entire spiritual right. So the spiritual perfects. The natural it perfects the literal sense, but in that way, just like nature to grace, uh, it serves as a foundation. And so, if you kind of skew or corrupt or warp your literal understanding, it, it, you're going to start having problems within the spiritual sense as well. If that makes sense. So, sort of I think, like if you say <laughs> that the miracle it was the sh- the miracle of sharing instead of Jesus actually multiplying the loaves. I mean, like right, he's, like literally, it says he multiplied the loaves. Yeah, so that, that, that's a, a perfect example, I think. So, for instance, when we read a New Testament, we read of a miracle of Jesus Christ. That's within its liter- literal sense. Like, what was the author's historical intent? Well, it was to show us that our Lord performed this type of miracle. So, if you have some kind of vapid, modern, you know, kind of very flat understanding of this in which you have to 
skew it and say, no, it, it's not a miracle or he didn't, you know, the resurrection was, you know, his philosophical overcoming of death or you know, whatever it is. If you skew that, skew that literal, then all the spiritual senses, right? The allegorical, the moral and anagogical. They don't mean anything. Yeah. It, it's like the foundation of your home mm. being cracked. What's going to happen to the rest of the home, right? It's also going to be warped. Right. So this is really good. And this is why I appreciate Adam opening up with, you know, what uh, Bible translations are good, what commentaries are good. Because you, you've got to stick close again to the magisterium, to the church. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, if you drift off too much, then, you know, and you see people like this, they get so wrapped around the axle on trying to figure out the literal of like, oh, did this author write this or this? They use this name for God, they do this, that they never can even make it past the literal, right? They're always trying to figure it out. And the literal just gets bogged down and loses its, really, its, its uh, sense of the fact that God is actually the ultimate author. And it kind of impedes them from actually then seeing the depths of this. And you see this a lot in modern scholarship versus like the early church fathers. I want to give a shout out to a resource, the Catena Aurea, since we're just talking about... Yeah, the golden chain. Yeah, like the, you know, resources on reading the Bible. This is something that was put together by Thomas Aquinas. He's pulling from church fathers commentary. What do the church fathers have to say on, you know, the gospels, on the Bible? Right. And it's just, it's a... It's, it's it truly a gold mine. I mean, it really is mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. an absolute treasure. And in the English, it's translated into English by John Henry Newman, a saint. Oh, really? Yeah. The one that's like by Baronius okay. Press, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we bought it uh, one year for uh, the diaconate class that was ordained uh, before me. We That was their gift that we gave them for their homilies. That was the golden chain. Beautiful. But yeah, it's Aquinas collecting all the early church fathers translated into English by John Henry Newman. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just it, an absolute treasure trove. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, like you cannot do better. I mean, if you want, what what is the Bible? What's it saying? Ask these guys. Right. But what you're gonna see there is you're gonna see a lot of allegorical readings, and I think so. Kind of maybe the segue from like the literal to the allegorical, because I think that just like when we hear literal, then we have to kind of expand our mind and say, okay, but that also includes different genres. It's just what was the author's intent. So clearly, the psalmist was meaning to write a psalm, et cetera. Right. The other thing too that I think sometimes when we hear allegorical. We typically, for whatever reason, mean that doesn't mean it's true, right? And with Scripture, the literal can be absolutely true, and it can then also have an allegorical meaning, right? Because some people are like, oh, it's an allegory. You know, this is like Narnia, right? This is Aslan and the, you know, Jesus resurrecting lion, right? Well, yes, there's an allegory, but in Scripture, it happens to be both literally true and have an allegorical sense to it, right? Like Plato's dialogues, right, are somewhat literally true, depending on, you know, how much he retained of the historical event. But then it's the allegory that we're really looking at. With scripture, it's like, no, we can hold that these things are absolutely 100% literally true, and they can have these deeper spiritual meanings. Those mm-hmm. two aren't competitive with one another, which for some reason, the modern mind, they tend to be competitive. Okay, so yeah. if, I'm, if I'm a reader uh, of the Bible, and I'm trying to look for more allegorical signs um, in text, I should be looking for uh, different types and different signs by the author? Yeah, so let's talk about what allegory means. Right? Let's not equivocate and... Literally, what's it mean? Yeah, literally. So what we're doing with allegory, right, is we're looking for uh, particularly that one thing is serving as a type of another, right? Okay. So if we look at, say, uh, Christ does this even in his own readings of Scripture. So, for instance, uh, you know, he's going to look back and he's going to say, here's manna in the desert. So this is John 6, the Eucharistic Discourse. So he says, look, here's manna in the desert. When Moses wrote about manna in the desert, right, his literal thing was just to explain that God was providing this miracle, right? 
Moses does not know that he's prefiguring the Holy Eucharist in this, right? Or most right. likely does not know, to our knowledge. And so then what happens is that Christ then, in the New Testament, takes this and gives an allegorical reading of it, which again is not competitive with the literal, and says, listen, just like you know, there was this manna in the desert, that was actually a type, a sign, pointing forward to a deeper and more true reality. And that is the fact that I'm the bread from heaven, right? Mm-hmm. I have come down from heaven. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life in you. So when we look at the allegorical, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for types and signs. And particularly, there's a unique relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so a lot of times the catechism, other places will talk about that the Old Testament foreshadows the New and the New Testament perfects the Old. So in the Old Testament, we're going to be looking for signs, types, etc. And when we find one, we realize, okay, this is going to be perfected somewhere in the New Testament. So we can take different examples. Um, say with Mary, right? Mary has several of these playing on. Yeah, so we would yeah, say we see her in Eve, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we see her untie the knot that Eve tied. So, you know, just quickly, like, you know, Eve would look at, uh, Eve listens to the serpent. She brings sin and death into the world. She's standing by the tree. She consumes the fruit. And then with Adam together, right, they bring damnation. Well, then you can see, uh, and actually, I, since you mentioned Catholic Answers, I wrote a whole thing on Catholic Answers about this, that you can actually read the entire New Testament as just a new Genesis. That that whole allegorical typology plays out. Because once again, right, so instead of uh, the woman coming from man, we have this time the man coming from woman, right? So we have the new Eve. Christ is the new Adam, right? He's drawn from her. Uh, Mary had to listen also to a messenger, but this time it's an angel, right? She said she gave her yes. She literally brings in salvation and grace right into the world. And once again, though, uh, they have to be at a tree again. And even the New Testament will talk about this, right? right? Christ was crucified on a tree. They know it's not a tree, but they're playing out this, you know, typology. And instead uh, of listening to the serpent, she, along with her divine son, crushes its head. Yeah, so they end up, you know, crushing death. We see that, um, yeah, so there's this whole typology, I think, that can play out. The typology, the study of signs, or study of types, right? And so this is, when we look at Which allegory... Which is not typography. Totally different thing. No, very good. No, that's good. That's right. good. Right, yeah. Adam? Right, that's right. No, excellent. Well that's, a, that's a deep call. Good back. distinction. <laughs> deep tracks right yeah, there. Yeah, that good is. Job. Good job. Yeah, so I think that anytime we're looking at like an allegorical sense, right, in the broad way, we're going to say, how does the Old Testament foreshadow the New, and how does the New Testament perfect the Old? Awesome. Which That's one of my favorite things about that. Like, when you discover those fulfillments in Those the New aha Testament, moments, mm-hmm. yeah. right? That's one of the things that just, I think, gives me the most appreciation for just the beauty that is written on every line of the Bible. Right. It's just amazing. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Catholic Man Show. I'm David Niles here with Adam Minahan, special guest, the Archdeacon Harrison Garlic. Thanks for being here, Deacon. You're welcome. We got Juan on the buttons. Jim guarding the door. Don't even think about doing any funny business around here. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Tyler Plude. <laughs> I ran into Tyler at Mass. He was the he was the only he and his his wife and his and his daughters. His wife, at least, were the only other people wearing a veil in the, in the church in uh, Michigan where we were at. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of funny that he came up to me. He's like, hey, are you David Niles? And I said, yes. 
He's like, I like your show. And it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you never know where that's going to go right, after exactly. that. Yeah. You, David Niles, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Do I owe you Please money? Please tell me why first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. also want to give out uh, a shout out to Genevieve Garlic. And I cannot <laughs> believe that you are still up. But Genevieve, we'll it's g- past your bedtime. But we will, <laughs> give, you, we will give you a pass since you're, you were uh, watching your father on, on the Catholic Man Show. That is, that's a definite pass. Yeah, that's good. She'll appreciate that. So we're talking about uh, how to read the Bible. Uh, talked about the literal, talked about the allegorical. Maybe we should talk about the moral. What do you think? Yeah, so I think the, the allegorical uh, serves as a foundation to basically the spiritual sense as a whole, right? So you can kind of see them building upon uh, each other if we want to keep that house analogy going. So if the allegorical is like we're looking for signs, etc., right? So like, oh, you know, how is Mary like a new Eve or the new ark or a new queen? How is, you know, baptism reflected in the primordial waters of creation? Like, how are we looking at this typology, then basically when we get to the moral, it's, okay, well, how, how does the literal and how does the allegorical apply to my life? This is the one that we're kind of most yeah. used to doing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do I do? What ought I do? Aquinas talks about, like, this is the what ought I do. So I understand Practical, this truth. Yeah. yeah, so here's a truth I understand. I understand the literal sense. I understand what the author was trying to get across. I understand that there's an allegorical sense here. Then I apply it to my life. What is it that I need to do? And again, I, I think this is typically what we're actually most familiar with. So mm-hmm. if you go to any morning parish Bible study, right? They're going to read something, and then the typical response is, okay, guys, how, how can this make you a better Catholic? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? But the, the, the sad thing is is that we actually, I think a lot of verses is actually hard to immediately be like, okay, what, what virtue, what, what do I pull out of this for my life? And actually how it's supposed to flow is the literal to the allegorical, which then the allegorical can give you uh, kind of like this beautiful roadmap uh, to the virtuous life, right? It gives you a lot more to work with. It's like, oh, okay, so... Mary's like this, or my baptism was like, you know, the Red Sea being parted and Israel being passed through. So, you know, how does that apply to my... It gives you more to work yeah. with when mm-hmm. you're actually going to look at your own life. Because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that is, um, you know, this is what not to do. Right. You know, it's not like everything in the Bible is this guiding light. I mean, it is, but not in the positive sense. Sometimes it's, hey, look, mm-hmm. you know, Israel did all of these bad things. Right. And then look what happened to them, you know. So without without that allegorical sense, you might think, oh. Just don't do the bad things. Right, you know, like, but. It can even help you, too, understand certain moral precepts that are already in Scripture, right? So we talk about, you know, um, you know, having someone who has an uncircumcised heart. Well, yeah. What does that mean, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means. Well, okay, well, the literal sense of circumcision in the Old Testament, et cetera, but then you start to understand it in an allegorical sense. You start to understand it as a prefigurement of baptism, you know, giving myself over, you know, to the body of Christ, being washed clean, being part of that bride, right? And then all of a sudden it starts to blossom, and it's almost like you have, uh, you know, these multiple layers you can look at and then say, okay, I, I start to understand now how this can actually apply to my life as, you know, mm-hmm. a Catholic. So just so as an example, um, you know, Dante is looking at the verse, the Israel coming out of Egypt. So he says, okay, this is the literal on its face, that the allegorical of this right is uh, Christ's Christ's salvation of mankind, right? So all of humanity is being like Moses bringing Israel out of bondage into the promised land is analogous to Christ, you know, saving us from sin mm-hmm. into right our final promised <coughs> land, uh, heaven via grace. So that's the allegorical. So then clearly the moral is. Well then, how does this apply to my life? What do mm-hmm. I do? Right, and so you say that sin has enslaved me as right. well. So then I have to apply it to my life and say, okay, well, how do I free myself from the bondage of sin? 
Mm-hmm. How do I agree to put myself under the headship of Jesus Christ? How do I move right from this sinful life to a life of holiness and virtue? And so that moral is that shift uh, to how does this apply to me? What ought I do? Right. So they're gonna have a question for that. The I feel like the moral is one of the pitfalls. The moral sense is one of the pitfalls that sometimes get misreaded from the literal, that you want to bypass allegory, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to say, you know, uh, how do, when when the guy is as saying, uh, Jesus, well, you know, how do I follow you? Well, sell everything and follow me. Well, the literal is sell everything and follow me. Therefore, the moral means wealth is bad mm-hmm. because you are missing that step. You are going right into moral from what's happening in the literal. I feel like that's a pitfall that sometimes yeah, can that's a good get question. abused. So how do we avoid that that pitfall? Well, I do, uh, th- yeah, it's a few things to parse out. One, I do, th- I do agree that we are very unfamiliar with the allegorical. And I think that like if you're in a parish Bible study in the morning and you're, you're you know, reading the, you know, Good Samaritan and you're like, oh, well, this is like, Christ picking us up and he takes him back to the inn and that's like the church. Like I, I don't think it's going to resonate with a lot of the people there and it, it's not it's going to sound stretched, right? It's going to sound like uh, I don't I don't think like as we as moderns are trained to do a very vapid flat scientific empirical reading of this, right? And so then we you are correct that I think then we skip uh the allegorical we go straight from literal to the moral. Uh, but you do have to be careful though cuz the literal can be very expansive, right? Like we said earlier, it has different genres, but then also the the literal sense can be a moral precept, right? And so you have to be careful that the literal in and of itself might have a moral precept for us, right? So, hmm. you know, I, I don't think we have to read, for instance, I don't think we have to read the young man, right? The the young rich ruler who comes to to Christ uh, and very clearly then, uh, you know, he's followed all the commandments, etc. but possessions are an impediment for him following Christ. I don't think we have to go allegorical very, you know, to actually get a moral precept out of that, right? The literal itself is a moral teaching. Like Christ is literally telling him, here's what you need to do to pick up your cross and follow me. But then I think there is, you know, an allegorical sense that we could read on that, which then that would only deepen the moral and expand it, right? But we want to be careful that we don't have to go to allegorical sometimes to actually see what the actual virtue is or the moral teaching of that. Particularly if this Christ on its face is telling someone, to do something that's moral, right? How do I live a good life? Well, you need to do X, right? Hmm. So the allegorical can expand it, uh, but it's not necessary to have a moral precept, if that makes sense. So <clears throat> what is the anagogical? Because I think this is the hardest one for me to understand. It's the hard- hardest one for me to wrap my head around anyway. Yeah, so anagogical, um, anagog, right, to, uh, to lead. Um, so basically the anagogical is looking forward. So if, if the... Literal was the author's intent. The allegorical is, you know, how can I read this according to types and signs, particularly in this interplay between Old and New Testament? The morals, how do I apply it to my life right now? The anagogical is, how is this? What? How does this illuminate my final end? How does this illuminate my eternal happiness with God? Right. And so, what we're looking at is, this is uh, the eschaton, right? So you look at these verses in the context of the final end uh, of man. And so, for instance, taking just like, again, a very simple, Israel leaving uh, Egypt and coming to the promised land, Dante reads this and says, yeah, the, the anagogical reading of this is just, you know, the final beatific vision that like man is finally taken, right, after his pilgrimage into 
uh, you know, his eternal happiness with God in heaven. And so it's a forward-looking sense. Uh, they all overlap, right, to a certain degree. Uh, and also keep in mind that the spiritual are all kind of building off the allegorical as well. So the anagogical typically, in that same sense, right, it has to have an allegorical reading to have the anagogical sense to it. Sure. But the first allegorical example we gave was an example of what Christ did for us at the cross. That you, so you can see, you can take the, you can take another allegorical look at it and apply it to actually our final end as right. well. So, yeah, it's probably I would say it's probably the most. So there, there's two anagorical. <laughs> we have lots of words. Allegorical. Yeah, allegorical. That's and the word. Anagogical. So there's the like kind of present day allegory, and then there's the like final end allegory. On Can that, one be without the other? On that verse, yes. So I think the thing is, is again, I think we're building. So the spiritual senses almost always are going to pull from the allegorical, right? It's going to be something that actually enriches them, right? So even if you're going to have a moral reading, um, unless it's actually, a, unless the literal actually has a moral precept in it, right? The allegorical is almost going to be almost necessary to pull a moral lesson out of what you're reading. So this is what I was going to ask you. Does every verse have all four senses or do some verses like in and of them, if like, if you just isolate them, well, that's not going to tell you enough. You need to get the at least like, the narr- the narrative from the chapter, you know, or from, you know, like at least the slightly bigger story. Because My, I would imagine there's plenty of verses in the Bible that are not gonna just if you just read that verse, it's not gonna tell you a whole lot about your eschat you know, like your eschatological destiny, you know, or something. Yeah. My hesitancy here is that just so when we talk about the literal, we talk about the author's original intent. But I think in the allegorical, we have to realize that a lot of what we're actually discussing is the true divine authorship of Scripture. Right. Right. That the fact that, you know, there's an interplay between manna and Christ or Mary and Eve, Ark and New Queen or any of these other typologies we can play out in Scripture are not by chance, nor are they actually created by man. We might observe them, but they've been arranged and structured by, you know, the divine authorship. Yes. So I, you know, I'm somewhat hesitant to be like, oh, this only applies to certain sections of Scripture. I think probably what I'm more comfortable saying is that there are ones that it's much more evident, and then mm-hmm. there's probably other stories in which, you know, they probably play into the broader themes. Um, but I think there's always, this is why Scripture keeps giving us more and more depth and treasures, because there's always something more to discover through the four senses. Very yeah, good. Very good. Uh, if you're listening right now, we are out of time on radio. Go to thecatholicmancho.com. Check out our podcast. We have over 300 of them. You can also support us by going to patreon.com slash thecatholicmancho and receive a lot of cool thank you gifts. Thank you, Deacon Garlic, for joining us. And uh, on the other side, when, we, when we're going into the podcast, I want to ask you, okay, I understand how to, how to implement this. How are you doing it uh, with Genevieve? How are you doing it with our children? <laughs> you know, so right. uh, let's... Great question. Uh, uh, so we're on the Lord's team? The winning side. So raise your glass. Cheers to Cheers. Jesus. Cheers. So before you get to that question, because I think that's probably a better question than what I'm going to ask. <laughs> Fair enough. It's definitely more relevant. Um, and Deacon, I, I do. I, I think you're, the last answer you had to like kind of truncate it there, but I, I, th- I think that... Y- that's what I, I, I would be going to guess at what your answer was. It was going to be that that like yes, no, it's it's there. Yeah, can we perceive it or not? You know, and but if once again, if you isolate a verse, there's some verses that just say weird things. You if, know, just because it's in the middle of a story, and sure. that's the way a story goes. Yeah, I mean, if you, but I think the the operative word there is isolate. Right. right. So if yeah, you look exactly. at if you look at it within the grand scheme of things, it would seem to me that the 
um, entirety of Scripture can be read according to the, the four senses because divine authorship, you know, has worked through the human authors to intertwine all these signs and types. And so I'd be really hesitant to be like, this can be isolated or put in a vacuum right. or whatever. I do think that, you know, obviously with Dante's example, he's using four words or whatever, and we're pulling all this meaning out of it. I do not think you could do that to every, you know, Certainly five, six-word oh, grouping. No. And also the verses that, you know, we refer to in the Bible, those are just arbitrarily assigned. You know, somebody a long time well, ago... Well, they're at least not original, yeah. Right, yeah, they're not, exactly. They're not original to the text. Um, they're not arbitrary. It's not randomly assigned, right? But they're just later on mm-hmm. attributed to the text. Um, and that... You know, they're not written in verse. They're written as a story, as a narrative, right? And, like, you can't just take any story. You can't just pull a a sentence out of the middle and expect it to make sense. Correct. According Mm -hmm. to the author's intent, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, so I think if you look at the... If you look at Scripture as a whole, then my inclination there would be that it would inform every verse within Scripture, and that would tether it to all four senses. So my next question is, is there a hierarchy of the senses? Like, is, is one... You know, okay, the literal sense is great, but that's the like the least important of all the senses. Or no, they all like kind of are on parallel with each other, and they're just important in their own way. Well, I, I think as we talked about, I think they build upon one another. And importance is a strong word, um, but I think we can see some some interplay insofar as like priority and causation, right? So, for instance, the literal is you could say the most important in certain ways. Because it's the foundation of the house, and if you you know warp that, sure. if you skew that, the whole house uh, gets crooked. So earlier, you know, you talked about you know how do we do, how do we what do we do with our kids, and how do we teach our kids this, and etc. Well, I think the first thing is you just read them scripture. You become mm. you habituate them to the literal sense. You habituate them to the stories, right? I think that a lot of times people, not to deviate too much, but just like in my own life and reflections on this, I think a lot of people are just like, why does God not talk to me? Like I don't ever have any insights. Why do I ever do this? But then, like, your imagination is basically filled with, like, work, porn, and Netflix. And it's like, you have no kindling for the Holy Spirit to work, right? They, they just think, like, the Holy Spirit's just going to, like, knock them upside the head. Mm-hmm. But you have nothing for your imagination. Because I, because, I st- because I prayed for five seconds. Right, like, what do I do? Or, like, I, I did this. And so I think that a lot of times, an insight that I had in my own kind of pursuit of holiness is, like, if I really want God to speak to me, I need to fill my mind, right, with this proper kindling. I need to fill my mind with something. Yeah. So if there is uh, somewhat to say a divine spark, the Holy Spirit comes to actually do this. Uh, what What is there for the Holy Spirit to even work with? What does he flow into? And so I think for me, this is, this is what moved me away from a lot of uh, habits and more to a more rigorous reading schedule is what am I offering? And so I think with, with kids, the first one is like, do you even know who Joseph is? Right. Do, do you know the story of him and his brothers? Do you understand Jacob? Do you understand the patriarchs, right? Um, it's good. I mean, you know, we had Bible story shows and stuff, and I think that's fine. You know, in a lot of ways, my kids usually watch some kind of Bible story uh, when they're eating breakfast, and that habituates them to all the basic narratives. But even like when I, I did read Genesis recently to my daughter, and uh, it was interesting because all of a sudden there's other stories about Abraham, right, that aren't going to be in kids' there, shows. There are some Abraham stories that, <laughs> right, uh, like <laughs> there are two things he did in particular that like really scandalized me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like Hagar, not in the kids thing, right? right. Uh, I was thinking more when he pretended to be the brother of his wife, right? Twice, <laughs> right. okay. It's once you do it, okay? Fool me once, right? All right, <laughs> you do right. it a second time, Abraham, like right. 
So I think I think one of the things is when we look at the importance of the literal um, that tethers, I think, to your question about children is right now, man, just teach them the stories. Just have their imagination be able to see this, see how God works. I mean, because yeah. I mean, the literal. We don't want to say that that is flat. I mean, believing that that God part of the Red Sea for Israel to go through, believe that there's manna. I mean, these are these are you know weighty things that their intellects have to grasp with uh, to begin with. But luckily, uh, they have a childlike faith. So especially it's like allegory. The, like the importance of fairy tales yeah. is so that you can understand allegory when you grow up. You know, like if you yeah. don't have fairy tales as a kid, because fairy tales are all allegory. I mean, it's essentially like that there's the good this, ones. Yes. Th- yeah. That there's this, that there's good and evil and that like good triumphs in the, you know, like that this basic narrative of right. the, these truths, universal truths that happen in in these fairy tales and those like that's the bedrock that's like the soil for a, the mind right and so mm-hmm. if you don't have those things as a kid it's going to be hard for you to understand these deeper truths the, the, right. in these adult fairy tales if you want to call them that i mean they're not fairy tales they're they're it's actually real right. um but fairy tales are real in their like in a way yeah, I think there's multiple things here. One is, yes, I agree with you. And so just like even in a fairy tale, if you misunderstand the literal story, then your allegory is corrupted, right? The allegory exactly. does not make right. sense. Right. Yeah. So if you're still, I'm still paying attention to your original question, which is hierarchy, um, at least you can understand, I think, a certain foundations that are built that I think the literal has to be understood well. And this is why I, again, point to like, you know, a, a magisterium or a, a commentary that's faithful to the magisterium a commentary that's not trying to cast doubt all the time, right, on the mm-hmm. literal sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, again, I think there's whole scholars that just never even make it past that and then believe there's nothing past this, right? Um, and I, I think that's terribly, terribly uh, incorrect for multiple reasons. But even like with fairy tales, I would argue that even your anticipation of a fairy tale having an allegorical sense is because of Scripture. Hmm. Because okay. I think that, uh, to kind of parse this out a bit, I think that... Um, both the Hebrew and the Hellenized, the Greek cultures, had already a culture that a good text had multiple reads to it. And I think when these two came together, according to divine providence, and kind of tilled the soil for the coming of Christ, I think they then gave us this really deep, you know, four senses, what's sometimes called the quadriga, right? The quadriga was a four-horse chariot um, that moves you to where you need to go. In the New Testament, and then in the early church fathers, I think this is really this this beautiful byproduct of of the Greek reason and Hebrew faith coming together. And in my opinion, this this taught the West that if you're going to write a book, it has to have multiple layers. I mean, that's what we anticipate. Like if you write a classic text, we anticipate. Let I me mean, just think about it. We we anticipate it has to have multiple layers. It has to have something deeper than mm-hmm. just the literal. Where does that come from? That comes from Scripture. The like, Scripture taught us how to read things well and to anticipate. And so if you look at uh, Boethius and Consolation Philosophy. You're going to look at Dante, obviously, explicitly we've already mentioned. You look at Chaucer. Like, all these guys are writing where their things have to work on multiple levels. And I think yeah. Scripture is what taught us that. And so even the fairy tales, I think, are picking up a particular sense of that. Good fairy tales are. So if I'm going to sum up your answer, it's that, you know, ultimately... We which, got the to literal, which question that you asked? You know, which, is there a hierarchy? I think there is a hierarchy... But right. not necessarily. I think you're right. Important is the is a bad word to use because if you if you lose the literal sense, you mm-hmm. lose all the other ones. But ultimately, the eschato the you know eschatological realities are of a higher nature than well, not a higher nature of a 
Well, they do with our final end, which then would inform everything else. Right. Those those are more important more important if you want to continue mm-hmm. a bad word than earthly realities, you know. And so the mm-hmm. analogic analogical mm-hmm. is that the right anagogical word? anagogical anagogical sense <laughs> is the old. That's like the most important one. I'm putting that in air quotes for people who aren't watching, um, because that's our final end. How about primordial? It's the most primordial one. Okay. Uh, well, we'll take that as a statement. So there's, <laughs> I think I'm just trying to get you from using bad words, Dave. Thank you. No, yeah. one's fantastic. Um, but I'm using a bad word on purpose. No, I think in my mind, yeah, it's it's moving upward. It's like building foundation of a home, yeah. which is the analogy that I gave. Um, in certain ways, it could also be seen as crossroads, and you have to take the right path. And so, like, if you take the wrong path on the literal, you're never going to get the allegorical. If you screw up the allegorical your morals is probably going to be skewed. And the anagogical, I think, is probably the most sensitive that then builds on top of these things. But right? the point is to get to the anagogical sense. In a certain way, yeah, because that's, that's our final end. Right. right. That's what our our actual point is. Right. right? That's that, our purpose. That's the part that points to God himself. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so that would be... That's the best one. Sure. Not, from not that you, perspective. Not, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, I think there's. I see what you're getting at. Yeah, I think you have to. I think you have to build these things, and I think that if you skew your moral or you skew that allegorical, um, I think that it's going to be real difficult for your anagogical to be on firm ground. So I had a follow up question to that, that relates to what you were saying about, oh, is God speaking to me in in uh, scripture? So when it comes to the moral and the alleg- allegorical. Is there one, uh, sorry, anagogical, is there one where, you know, as I'm reading scripture, the moral is different for me than it is for Dave? Or if it's different, the next, the anagogical is like, oh, where does it come personalized? Or is it always applying to humankind as a whole Mm. and nature builds on grace? Good question. Yeah, I think it's really good. like most things in Catholicism, I think it's both and, right? Um, I don't, you know, a universal reading I don't think precludes like a particular reading as well. I think the particular pushes us into a somewhat deeper understanding of it. So I do think that on the just like the universal side, it's, yeah, like so I think most of the examples we gave were universal, right? It applies to all of us, right? What do I do here and et cetera. When you say particular though, I'm assuming you mean something more than just like, how I apply fortitude to my life or how do I apply prudence to my life, right? Because every moral sense is going to have an actual application to you and where you are in your own virtuous life. The next kind of level, I guess, if you want to use, I don't want to say importance, right? But the next kind of push is that, you know, the medievals understood that we read scripture this way, according to the four senses. Um, But I think if you really want to think like a medieval, um, they also interpreted reality according to the four senses, so it's not just the book of scripture that they interpret according to the quadriga. Uh, it's also the book of nature. It's God mm. himself. And this is where I think you really get into this particularized deal, right? Because, you know, for instance, like if I'm, so how do we apply the four senses to reality, to my own walk with Christ in my own life? Well, we we kind of already do this today, but we're I don't know if we're incredibly cognizant of it, right? So like say I'm going through a, a difficult time, right? Well, I can see myself then, even some of the phrases we use out of piety, right? I'm picking up my cross, right? I'm being crucified. I'm conforming myself to Jesus Christ. You know, I'm going through my desert, 
right now, and I'm, I'm praying for this promised land. So we're actually already taking something literally in our life, right? And we're actually turning it into having an allegorical level that a lot of times we're tethering it to an allegorical understanding in Scripture, right? So these tend to build on one another. So I understand that Israel moving through the desert can also be an allegory for my pilgrimage on earth. And now I'm taking my particular example that's actually happening here in reality, and I'm going to read it allegorically as well and tether these two things together that I understand me facing the struggle at work or my poor health or whatever it is, I see it as a desert, right? And so then it's, okay, well, then what do I do about it? So that's, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, what's the moral sense? How am I moral in this particular situation for me? According to virtue, right? According, you know, uh, Catholicism's not, despite its caricature, right? It's not legalistic because the virtues aren't legalistic, right? The virtues are, you know, how do I have a habit of applying this broad moral precept to this particular situation? So I think then in our own, if we're going to take like our reading from scripture and start applying it to our lives, we have to realize that the medievals then took these four senses and put them as the lenses by which they actually viewed their own reality. And so I can see, oh, I'm going through the desert. Well, then what does that mean? Well, what does it mean for moral sense? Well, I need to push through this. I have to get through this thing at work. I have to get through this poor health. I have to do X, Y, and Z. I need more fortitude. I need more prudence, right? I need more temperance, whatever it is. And why do I need all those things? Why do I need to accomplish all of this? Because the anagogical, because I, I want to, you know, be happy with God forever in heaven. So I think like a, you know, a kind of push on this um, to a way that we're very uncomfortable with as moderns is that this is really how we should be viewing reality itself and how God talks to us today. You know, that's, that's one of the things that I think we really need to drive home. And just something that I have experienced personally is that if you will make a real dedication of sitting down with Scripture, reading it, you know, doing what we would call Lexio Divina, um, just taking the daily gospel reading, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just you don't have to like start in the right spot, you know, just, just hey, here's where we are liturgically. Sit down at the gospel every day, reflect on it, read it slowly pause, read it again, mm-hmm. you know, pause, read it a third time, and then just see what jumps out at you. I mean, like, the thing is that Christ will speak to you. I mean, if you make that space for him, and you, it's, it's not like, oh, on day one, you're going to be receiving these, you know, great inspirations. Prophetic messages. Right, exactly. <laughs> but if you, kind of like what you're saying, Deacon, is that if you start to habituate yourself right. to this, to, to his word in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, he wants to speak to you. And all he's waiting for is for you to open up a place for him to do that. Mm-hmm. It, like, he will do it. Um, even in specifically in your life, you know, what is, it, what is it that you need to hear? What is it that you're missing? What is it that you need? Um, he will reach out and talk to you directly. Um, and it's so beautiful and I think that that's something that we don't say and we don't promote enough, at least as Catholics, um, because honestly, I think a lot of people, a lot of Catholics, don't think that that's true. Um, and, and that might not be, I live in a Catholic bubble, so that might be true of other, you know, of mm-hmm. Christians in general, that we've kind of sold ourselves short in believing, you know, is this really God's word? Um, and does it actually apply to me? Does it matter to me? It does. Um, and if you will, if you will make this a habit of reading it and just and meditating on it and loving it, 
that it will change your life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think there are, I think in a lot of ways, Catholics sometimes are on the defensive when it comes to like, you know, a, a quote unquote personal relationship with Jesus Christ or Christ speaking to me because there's so, there are, I mean, there's a myriad of bad understandings of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so w- w- in what happens is we see a lot of like Protestants claiming to have this, but then their personal revelation contradicts tradition, scripture, right. yes. everything. And so it just seems to be a vehicle of like, well, we've really just kind of circled back to like this fancy version of relativism in which you've just manufactured a Jesus that happens to tell you that everything I get that. is right. I right? see that too. I'm, so I'm, I do I'm think down to that. I, I do think there's that. a great hesitancy um, because I think that a lot of times Catholics who even want to experience that are hesitant on how that works. And I do, I do think that reading scripture like St. Jerome, right? Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. So kind of like circling back. So how do we have to engage scripture going to the four ways, the quadriga? You know, I, I would say, honestly, if you're, if you're just starting out, just focus on the literal. Don't try and beat your head. I mean, the allegorical comes, but the thing is, are you going to under, understand allegorical if you don't even understand scripture? How are you going to understand that Noah's flood is kind of like baptism if you haven't read St. Peter or Genesis? Right. So don't try and like push it. And I mean, you'll get these little bits out of it, right? But if you can flood your mind with these things, right? So just you read in the morning, you start your day off like this. You're like, okay, I'm just going to read like two chapters from Genesis a day or uh, or just even a chapter. Yeah. Or I'm going to read a chapter from John. Just even kind of um, putting that in your imagination. I, I, I'm a big fan of not, like you said, you know, like, okay, I'm going to pray scripture. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to like, God talk to me right now. I, I, I don't know. I mean, some people, it works for some people. For me, it's always been, I'm going to try and use this time to fill my mind with holy and good things, right? To think about what is actually, you know, pleasurable uh-huh. and noble and all these things. And let those things saturate my mind, particularly in the morning. So then as I'm going through the day, what I've realized is that becomes my reference point. Whatever my morning was becomes my reference point for the whole day. And I think that if we're going to go on an allegorical understanding of, of reality, um, I think one of the things the church understands, even if it's kind of quiet about it, is that each day is an analog for your life. Mm-hmm. So you want to start the day in prayer, you want to stay within you know, grace, you want to live a virtuous life, and you want to end the day in prayer, right? because that's what I want to do in my entire life. Mm-hmm. So each day becomes this you know, microcosm of how I live my life, and you know, if, if you do that, then that is how you're living your life, right? And I think one of the easiest ways to do this is just start reading in the morning. Wake up say at least some prayers, right? Try to cultivate that attention to God. Throw your phone on the other side of the room and get away from screens. Do whatever you have to do to, to get away from that. Um, you know, because we habituate our minds to, to not even be able to, every five seconds something has to change, right? Right. And just sit there in peace and quiet and read the scriptures. And it's amazing how much you'll get sunk in, even on the literal, just like understanding the scripture and like, oh, I, you know, my understanding of Abraham sacrificing Isaac has really just been a caricature from culture. That's the other thing. Stop thinking that you actually understand the stories, right? This is one of the reasons I wanted to read Genesis to my child, because it's like, let's actually read Abraham and Isaac. Now, I do think that even for, you know, uh, you know, my child who's eight, reading through this, when we got to Abraham, I didn't try and, I didn't try and force things, but when we got to Abraham, you know, sacrificing Isaac, you know, I started asking her some questions of like, do we know any other father who sacrificed his son? Do we know any other son who had to carry the wood, right, to the top of the mountain where he was going to die? Do we know any other story that happened over three days, right? And, and all of a sudden, like, it clicked. It's like, oh, my gosh, this is like Jesus. Wait, why is this like Jesus? Right? It's like, wait, what? Why, 
Why is this like Jesus? And it's like, okay, like Dad, I just had an insight. Maybe nobody has thought of. <laughs> but I mean, it's this, it's this beautiful thing of like, well, wait, why why is this like Jesus? And then once you see it, right? Once once that um, kind of veneer is off, it's so clearly an allegory of Christ. And you're like, wait, how is this? How's this work? Why? Well, this is divine authorship, and like God knew, right? Moses doesn't know that, you know, theoretically when he's writing this. Right, but right. yeah, you know, so this is the author's intent, but the allegory can come in, and now we can see this, you know, with his eyes. So I think that honestly, but the only reason she can put that together is because she's familiar with the passion narrative, and then she's familiar when she reads Abraham. So I think this just like with us, if we're getting started, you know, read Genesis, uh, read Exodus. It's you know, it's very good. Um, you know, read um, John, one of the Gospels. Right. I mean, just read read Acts, read these basics to get the narrative, and you'll start making these connections right and you'll yeah. start seeing how one thing is is like another and god will start speaking to you throughout the day because you're you're filling your mind full of things that are good and pure and holy yeah and i think that if you just sorry adam but i think if you're just starting off and you kind of talked about this at the beginning is like i have not read the bible i don't know any of these things that's okay start with the gospels you know when you read the gospels you have jesus speaking directly um on all kinds of things and, and that's a, I think that's a great place to start because, mm-hmm. um, like, if you start off in Corinthians, yeah, that's going to be the worst. All right. Like, <laughs> no, no, like, uh, I mean, like, well, it'll be confusing. I'm sure well, it'll be the worst. I mean, it'll be the worst place to start in the Bible, is what I mean. You know, like, okay, because I still don't know what he's saying some of the time. <laughs> I mean, numbers are. Well, numbers would just be like boring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it would just that would just be that would yeah. like yeah that would just be boring. Um, yeah. But if you start in the Gospels, you know it's mm-hmm. um, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what Jesus is saying. You mm-hmm. know, um, there is a deeper meaning that the more you study, the more you will learn and appreciate and come to like these deep, incredibly deep, beautiful realities. You know that right. Jesus is portraying, but. That's the beautiful thing. I mean, this, that's part of, I also think, the divine inspiration, you know, the divine authorship, what we would call, uh, of the Gospels, is that they're so um, accessible, just mm-hmm. on, the, on the face of them, you know, that right. they have these beautiful truths that anybody, a child, can understand. Mm-hmm. But you will never, ever grow tired of the, the, the deeper and deeper you go, the deeper and deeper you see that they go, right? right? And that they, they never grow old. Um, so like that, I, that's what I think that's worth saying. That yeah. Start with the gospels. So I've been on the man show a couple times. Every time I'm on, Adam says like a total of like 20 words, the whole episode. <laughs> so I want to know what Adam Minahan <laughs> thinks about the subject. No, well, I was actually just going to thank you for, for, for your no, time. You, you got to ask a question. You have no, a question. You, no, you can't ask. just go well, the gratitude route. Well, I agree. That's well, a cop out. What's really <laughs> on my heart is <laughs> you is coward. You <laughs> coward. <laughs> Actually, what I was gonna say, I was gonna ask. Oh, uh, just thank say, you for being here. Th- yeah, for thanking you, and then also like giving you an opportunity to say like if somebody was wanting to find out what you, what else you're no, doing. You didn't even ask your question. You had a good question. You didn't even ask. No, you I, that question. was that was it. That was what I was going no, to you do. Can I was ask giving you about you, Genevieve. Uh, no, that was he, we've already answered that. I mean, he talked a little bit about it, but I feel like you could ask no. him again. I, no, he has knowledge that he's withholding. That he, no, has, I, he has this. It's also this uh, it's actually it's also what? like. 
10, 10 after 10 and you have an hour drive home. Our, our podcast everything. listeners don't care what time it is. No. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for coming. I'm really worried about you and blah, 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 blah. Like, no, I want, this is ridiculous. I want hit stop recording until you ask a meaningful question. We're going to just I stare here. I also stop recording. Yeah, I don't have any... My whole family's... Well, actually, I think they're watching this right now, but somehow. And then, you know, then I have to drive home. So it's fine. <laughs> Genevieve so. has been waiting for your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She will probably cry She'll if you don't cry. ask a good question right now. Um, okay, fine. I, I can't guarantee it'll be a good question, but I can I can continue asking questions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so St. Thomas pulls uh, th- these ideas, um, and it seems like that he's pulling it also from, like we said, the, the Platonic uh, idea, but also the Aristotelian. Uh, the, with St. Thomas people, the issue with Platonic First Aristotelian, uh, how what what role does Plato play, or the, the Pla- uh, Plato's thought play in uh, Thomas Aquinas pulling pulling all this um, thought process, the, the senses versus Aristotelian? Oh yeah, well okay. Next time we're not going to allow Adam to yeah. ask the question. <laughs> you guys just, ask. He's just going to go like, from the depths because the it's depths. like okay. Well then, I'll, can you I'll, articulate uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, versus Plato versus Aristotle? I mean, I was going to ask that question like forty minutes ago, but I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I tried not to. Like I said, I was okay. Like, be, so be grateful, and then okay. So we'll just dive into the deep end. So <laughs> I think that I think that well, I was recently reading this introduction to Platonic philosophy by. Uh, Peter Kreeft, who's you know wonderful and, and very good at, about reducing these things to a really palatable level. And one of the things that did catch my attention there is that when he talked about this quadriga, the four senses, etc., he actually has it under his list of examples of St. Thomas Aquinas adopting Platonic thought. So it, I think that Peter Kreeft overall is pretty good about sidestepping uh, certain caricatures about Aristotle and Plato and just that like, you know, there's this caricature, I think, that basically, you know, we had Plato, Aristotle came in and corrected Plato, and everything was just positive, like, he just moved everything forward, and then Aquinas comes in and corrects and perfects Aristotle, and therefore, you know, basically, Aquinas is the perfected Aristotle. And I think Kreeft is very good about showing, at certain times, um, some very significant Platonic ideas, um, pun intended, I guess, that... Aquinas actually adopts. Right, because uh, for like the first 12, 13, 1400 years, it was more Platonic because Aquinas introduced back Aristotle into the Catholic scene, right? So for Augustine, for Mm -hmm. uh, Jerome, they were all actually pulling, and and even when Aquinas is pulling from Augustine, he's actually pulling from uh, Augustine, pulling from Plato. Right. So I think there's certain ways that, you know, we'd probably be more comfortable talking about the that Augustine, who's understanding Plato probably through a Neoplatonic lens through Plotinus, is perfecting Plato. I think where Kraft points to to kind of tether it to this particular conversation is, you know, for Plato, one, when he's writing his dialogues, as we kind of mentioned in passing, he's writing them with typology. He's writing them with allegory, right? So this idea that things have this multiple levels and texts and things like this you know if you read aristotle it's like reading an instruction manual right like here's this treatise etc so i actually think that reading plato and that platonic tradition um in, in a lot of ways i think better habituates someone to reading scripture so for instance you know we have um you know a small group that we're in that we read the great books this kind of sunday great books thing 
And one of the reasons that I, I pitch reading the dialogues is that I think the muscle, uh, the tool, whatever analogy you want to use that you use to understand Plato in the dialogue is the exact same muscle you're going to use to understand scripture, right? Are you paying it? Scripture doesn't have unnecessary details. Neither does Plato's dialogues. So I do think there's this whole kind of onrush of, at least how Crafe sees it, that this understanding that kind of melded into Christianity, that there's multiple layers inside of Scripture, does have a lot of root inside of Platonic thought. I think where I would be hesitant is to say that like it's a gift from Plato, more as like something that was also mm. uh, inchoate or, or nascent inside of Hebrew thought, because within Old Testament we clearly see allegory. Right. Mm -hmm, Whether we see one Old Testament author using another Old Testament author in an allegorical way is slightly different. I think what we see a lot is providence in that particular author meaning to create an allegory. But without question, there's lots of allegories in the Old Testament. And so I think that both of these cultures coming together kind of gave us this blossoming of um, the Old Test, or uh, excuse me, of the of the four senses. But I think. To maybe to, to be slightly more bold, I think that when Crafe though talks about the four senses being tied to Plato, it's not simply tied to the text. What he's also pointing out is the understanding of reality itself. And this is where you really get to what we talked about earlier, that reality itself needs to be seen according to the four senses. Because again, for see how easy you slip into this. If we're going to say, well, that's because things around us are actually signs that what God is trying to talk to us about, right? Think how easy that slips in from Plato, thinking that everything around us is really an image or a sign of a more perfect thing. You see how those two immediately start to correlate, Mm -hmm, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And so I think that um, there's a certain way inside trying to read reality in an allegorical sense that the Platonic understanding that, you know, there are these forms, these perfect things, um, um, you know, that are, have a metaphysical reality, right? So there's like a perfect tree, there's a perfect house, there's a perfect man, etc. cetera, um, that have this metaphysical, uh, realist existence and every other tree on the planet participates in that tree lends itself pretty well to also the understanding that God is trying to talk to us through signs and images and sure. things like this. So I think this is why Crave in that sense talks about that Aquinas kind of full bore picking up the four senses can be seen as him adopting a more platonic sense because Aristotle doesn't have that. Aristotle, um, you know, apologies to all the Thomists, even though I think that Crave's very good about showing that Aquinas adopts some of Plato's ideas over Aristotle. Aristotle's is very flat. We need to keep in mind that for, for Plato, the highest knowledge of the philosopher is a mystical union, right? I mean, it's, it's a mystic, it's an erotic experience. That makes a lot more sense to us with our own mystics than Aristotle, who denies that, you know, uh, the eternal forms, right, Plato's ideas exist. Um, you know, there's arguments about whether or not Aristotle even thought the soul was immortal. And so, you know, there's, I think, uh, I think setting aside these caricatures of, you know, where did Aquinas adopt Plato or Aristotle, et cetera, I think it's really key. And I think one of those things is, you know, how did we read scripture? How did we come to this point? I do think there's a, a platonic inheritance there. Um, that we typically don't acknowledge, if that makes sense. Yeah. I know it's late. We okay. could probably drill more into that, but that's my short answer. Well, I mean, I wasn't going to even ask the question. You guys, like, forced me to <laughs> no, ask this I, question. We, you have uh, good questions. So, we just want to ask yeah. these things. 
It was a um, rude, like I said, it was a rude question. But. <laughs> oh so uh, where could they find more of your work, Deacon? Uh, well, I, as you mentioned, I think the article for was a Genesis for tonight uh, is on the Alcorn Institute website, and so I write certain things there. My last name is Garlic, G-R-L-I-C-K, and so go Al- and search Alcorn bar. Institute.org? Correct. Yeah, so going there and searching should should pop those things up. So I wrote that one not too long ago, How to Read Scripture According or as Dante and Aquinas did. Um, and then also on Catholic Answers, I have a handful of articles over there, one that we mentioned tonight, which is understanding if you kind of want to see this in action right then then the one at catholic answers is how to read uh, the new testament as a new genesis and so that's just you know uh, a tour de force of understanding typology and and how these things uh, can work so those are kind of the two main places we'll we'll uh, link those in our show notes as well but thank you so much for coming on thank you for yeah. uh, uh, all your work in the diocese you're a, a blessing to the diocese I'm, I'm grateful for you that's very kind thank you guys i appreciate it All right, we're on the Lord's team. The winning side. So raise your glass. And cheers to Jesus. Cheers.